But I will judge the nation that they served, God said, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. So God tells Abraham, before your family actually, actually takes possession of this land, they will be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So we just like super hyperspeeded through the book of Genesis, got to the book of Exodus, and there was two promises now that God has given Abraham. One, I'm going to give you this promised land. And two, I'm going to bring you out of slavery. We're going to deliver you from slavery in Egypt to make my first promise happen. Okay, so those are the two promises. You're going to have a land, and you're going to come out of Egypt. I'm going to get you out of Egypt to give you that promised land. And the sign of the deal that we just read between Abraham and God was Abraham got circumcised, right? So if you don't know what that is, ask your mom and dad. Happy Mother's Day, right? Ask them <laughs> what that is, right? Circumcision is a sign on the male genitalia that was like, I believe you, God. I believe what you say is true. I believe that what you promised is going to happen. So God is making promises to Abraham. Abraham is believing those promises and proving it by being circumcised. And so, continuing on verse 8, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12th patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him over and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. If you remember from our study in Genesis, this is the story of how Abraham's family ended up in slavery in Egypt. Verse 11, now there came a famine through all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers for their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver to the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. Okay, so here's the closing of the scene. God makes the promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but before I give you the land, you're going to end up in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. So then Stephen explains the story of how Abraham's family ended up in Egypt, and now they're in Egypt. The Pharaoh that loved them died. There's a new Pharaoh. He's subjecting them to hard forced labor, and this family is multiplying to multiple thousands of people, generations upon generations for 400 years. Now, Verse 20, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deed. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So this is an entire summary of the book of Genesis, and now the first couple chapters of the book of Exodus. 
And God has planned to deliver the people from slavery. We already read that in the book of, er, in the promise to Abraham. And Moses has this in his heart. He feels like God has called him to lead his people out of slavery. And he's like, let's go, let's do this. And it says he supposed they would understand, but they didn't understand. He's like looking around. He's like, you're my people. Let's do this. Let's get out of this. And they're like, no, we're not doing that. Wait, you're going to make it harder on us. Why? Don't rock the boat, man. Just stir the pot. Just leave things like they are. It's going to be okay. And the following day, verse 26, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile, reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So Moses has this thing in his heart to deliver his people, but his people want none of it. So he takes off and he goes out in the desert and he lives there for 40 years. He has two kids. He's been out there for 40 years. And verse 30 is where we pick it up. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a bush. This is the burning bush story that you may remember. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And he drew near to look. And there came to the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So after Moses spends 40 years living out on his own, God comes to him and says, it's time, Moses, let's go. It's time. You had this in your heart. They rejected you. It's OK. It's my time now. Let's go. So verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So here's the big point. Moses whom they rejected was actually God's plan to save them, God's plan to deliver them, God's plan to do the thing he had promised and bring them into the promised land. And then here's where it gets crazy. While Moses was still alive, he prophesied by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, in the future, there's going to be another person just like me who's also going to lead the people of God into their deliverance. He's also, he's going to be just like me, but he's going to be the promise bringing salvation of God for humanity. OK, so everybody at the trial should be on board at this point. Nobody should be like, wait, that's not true. All of it, he's just reading through the story of the Bible, right? This all happened, right? This is the, the exact story of Abraham going down to Egypt, his family becoming slaves, then Moses being born, leading them out of slavery. They go into the wilderness. Moses is doing all these signs and wonders. And the whole time, the people of God are like, ah, we don't like this Moses guy. What's he doing? Don't know what happened to him. The whole history is God's people rejecting the thing that God had for them. 
This is the whole thing. We just summarized the books of Genesis and Exodus, and the whole thing is about the masses, the people of God saying, no thanks, God. We don't want your plan for our good. Verse 38. This is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. So here's what happened. Moses tries to start the deliverance of his people. They're not interested. He comes back 40 years later. God empowers him to do these incredible signs and wonders. If you remember the 10 plagues in your Bible on Egypt, then brings them across the Red Sea. And you would think at that point, the people of God would go, you know what? We were wrong about you. We think God's got a plan for you, Moses, you know? Like they had rejected him this whole time. And now they're delivered. They're out of slavery. They're seeing all these signs and wonders. And you would expect the people of God to be like, you know what? We were wrong. We now we'll listen to you, Moses. Now we'll, we get it now. We were kind of, we didn't understand at first, but now we get it. We get that you are from God and you are God's plan for our good. So we're going to listen to what you say now. But they didn't. They continued to reject him. So much so that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments from God, he was gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And like a couple weeks in, they're like, well, I guess he's dead. So they went to Aaron, who was the priest at the time, and they said, make us some gods. And Aaron's like, what? And so they made a little calf, and they started bowing down, worshiping the golden calf. And they were like, you brought us out of Egypt. Thank you, calf. And I was like, Really? And that's one of the best stories in your whole Bible. Moses comes back, and he's like, what are you guys doing? And Aaron goes, I don't know what happened. He's like, I had a bunch of gold, and I threw it in the fire, and this calf jumped out. Moses is like, really? That's your explanation? Like, the dog ate my homework? Anyway, what happened was they continued to worship not the God who led them out of Egypt, but other gods. And what happened was they started to add gods that they were worshiping. They're on the desert, like, oh, we need rain. So they do a little dance to the rain god. And they're like, oh, we need crops. So they start worshiping the crop agriculture god. Or they're like, oh, we need our wives to have more children. So they did some sacrifices to the fertility god. And, and all this time, they're worshiping these other gods. And God is like, really? Did any of those people bring you out of slavery in Egypt? Did any of those promise you generations ago to Abraham that I would take care of you, that you would be my people, that I would be your God, that I would give you the promise? No. So God said, if you continue to worship other gods, you will be given over to the consequences of that choice. Verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. So this is uh, worshiping other gods. As it is written in the book of Prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech. Molech is a Canaanite god. And the star of your god, Rephan. Rephan's another idol, a false god. And the images that you made to worship, I will send you into exile into Babylon. So these are false gods. The host of heaven is another false god. These are all idols, false gods that they began to worship, even though God was the one that brought them out of slavery in Egypt by the hand of Moses. 
So let's pause this story for a second. Go back to Stephen's day. If you were to accuse somebody at Stephen's point in time of the Jewish religion being false or, or not honoring God or somehow getting off track in what they were doing, the Jewish rebuttal would be, well, we have the temple. We can't be wrong. The presence of God in the temple is inhabited and constructed within the nation of Israel. We have the temple. Of course we're not wrong. Look it. We got the temple. And so Stephen is actually going to address that argument before they even have a chance to make it. Let's read it in verse 44. It says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought with them Joshua when they dispossessed the lands that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what plate, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen finishes with this idea. He goes, okay, guys, the story from Abraham to Moses is littered with you guys, well, your forefathers, rejecting the plan of God. God was like, I'm going to do this. Your forefathers were like, no, thanks. I'm gonna, you should do it this way. Ah, we don't want it. You should do this. Actually, we're going to pray to Molech. You should pray to me. Actually, we're going to pray to Rafan. Well, maybe you should worship me. Actually, we're going to worship you, but in the afternoon, we're going to worship the hosts of heaven. So it's over and over and over from Abraham to Moses were people rejecting the plan of God for their lives. And not only that, only that, but at the same time, they had the presence of God in their midst. They had the tabernacle. Then they had the temple which they should have understood was just a kindness and a grace of God. It wasn't some like stamp of approval from heaven, like you guys are perfect, here's my temple. Like that's not what was going on, right? The whole time they had the presence of God. They were following the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They had the, the cloud of God's presence filling the temple when they built it. And yet the whole time they were rejecting the purpose of God. It was a grace and a kindness that he chose to be present in their midst. It was in no way because they had earned it. In fact, it was actually probably the opposite. They had probably earned his wrath. And yet in his grace, he had stayed with them. So here's the interpretation. I told you that all of, none of this would have been arguable. Like nobody would have listened to this, but like, oh, that's not true. All of this is in your Bible, right? He's just recounting the facts of what happened from Abraham to Moses. God promised to deliver them from Moses. They rejected Moses the whole time. They're like, thanks, but no thanks, God. We're going to worship idols. We're going to worship ourselves. We're going to worship other gods that help us get what we want. We're not really interested in your plan for our lives. And so now he's going to break from this historical account, and he's going to actually give some interpretation. Let's read it. Verse 51, Stephen says this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Whew. 
shots fired, right? He's not just saying like, hey, maybe you guys should pray about this. He's like, no, no, you guys are so far off. You guys are so far off. He calls them stiff-necked people. This is like a phrase to describe a very proud and more, more than just proud, but stubbornly proud person, right? If you have a stiff neck, you like, we have that phrase where you look down your nose at people, right? You just kind of like, it's the same kind of idea. It's like, I'm proud and I'm stubborn about my pride. It's, it's like, I, I think I'm always right and I'm stubborn about it. I'm totally overcommitted to myself and stubbornly so. Like, you cannot convince me of anything besides what I already believe. He says, your heart and your ears are uncircumcised. Circumcision was the mark of Abraham that he believed and trusted God, remember? So to have hearts and ears uncircumcised means that your circumcision means nothing. Your, your circumcision means nothing because your heart is committed to yourself and your stubborn pride and not committed to God. And even if God, in his mercy, wanted to come down and correct your path, if he wanted to say, like, hey, you're going the wrong way, turn away, your ears are uncircumcised. You wouldn't listen. Your ears are not dedicated to God. You don't even want to hear what God has to say to you. He says this, your circumcision is in penis only. Happy Mother's Day. Didn't think you'd hear that from stage, did you? Don't let that happen. Don't let your commitment to God be in, in appearance only. Your heart is, your ears, those are the things that need to be dedicated to God. And then he says this, just like your fathers did, so do you. Just like history tells a story of a people who rejected Moses as God's plan for their deliverance, you are rejecting Jesus as God's plan for your deliverance. You guys have a family history of rejecting God's plan for your lives. Don't you see that? That's what he's trying to get these people. This, is, this has been the legacy of our people. Yes, we are the people of God. And yes, we reject God's plan for our lives more than anybody. More than any. We always resist what God is doing. He says, which one of the prophets didn't you kill? See, you guys were given the law. How's that going for you? You following all of it? Thou shalt not lie. How you doing on that one? Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not covet. You doing okay on any of those? No, you can't even keep it. He says, even though Moses did incredible signs and wonders and our forefathers didn't follow him, Jesus in the same way did incredible signs and wonders and you guys rejected him. Moses built up this thing, delivered people from slavery, and then led them across the Red Sea in this final incredible miracle. And you rejected him, complained about him, said, we kind of want to go back. Jesus, in the same way, did signs and wonders and miracles over and over. And then the final miracle was he raised himself from the dead. The tomb was empty on that Easter Sunday. And you guys are doing the same thing that your forefathers did. No, thanks. We don't want it. We don't want the deliverance. We don't want what you have for us, God. 
And the most credible thing about the whole story is while Moses was being rejected and resisted, God used him to prophesy and say, God is going to send another deliverer like me. And Stephen is basically saying, that deliverer came, and you didn't recognize him. You didn't listen to Moses, the guy you hold so highly. And you thought everybody else was, your forefathers were so stupid because they rejected Moses. Now you're rejecting the one he told you who was going to come. Moses said, someone else is coming just like me. And his name was Jesus. And you're rejecting him now. It kind of reminds me of this hypocrisy, uh, like when you have kids. Remember when you didn't have kids and you were super judgmental of all the parents in your life? I don't know why they let their kids do that. I don't know why they let their kids, do, I don't know, I'll, when I'm a parent, I'll never let my, right? And then you have kids and you're like, oh crap, this is hard, right? And you go back on all this, I'm so sorry for all the parents I ever judged in the world, right? Because when you have kids, you realize, I didn't know what I was talking about at all. The Jews are like, we have a long history of rejecting God's plan, but that'll probably never happen to us. <laughs> really? And so look what happens, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen becomes the first person to lose his life for his faith in the church after Jesus. The first martyr of the church the first person to give his life for following Jesus. And these people's reaction proves his point, doesn't it? Like, you guys always reject the plan of God. And what do they do? It says they cover their ears like toddlers. I can't hear you. And they rush at him. It's incredible. It's incredible that... Like he said, their hearts and ears were uncircumcised. Even in this last attempt to redirect their lives, God is basically pleading through Stephen with them. Guys, wake up. You're resisting the plan of God for the salvation of the word, for your salvation and your people's salvation. And they still wouldn't listen. And they stoned him to death. And while this is happening, there's this weird character. I'm not going to spend uh, a lot of time on it, but he's thrown at the end of the chapter, and his name's Saul. And he has some sort of authority or something going on in the passage. It says he holds the robes of the people who are stoning Stephen to death. So he has some sort of uh, influence where, where he's like overseeing this at some level. He's like approving of this at some level. And later on, his name's going to be changed to Paul. You're going to remember. And he's going to become the Apostle Paul. And this is going to be the event that affects him for literally the rest of his life. He's going to talk about this event like all the way through the scripture, he's like, that, that day still haunts me. That's why I say Stephen is one of the most impactful and influential people in the early church because Paul has influenced him. Luke, obviously, giving as much time as he did to Stephen's story was influenced him. 
it's just an outsized impact of this short but incredibly impactful life of Stephen. So I told you this was coming. We're going to circle back around now. Why did God see fit to tell this story? Why do you think he told us this story? We actually now have two stories, right? We have the original story written in the Old Testament. Then we had Stephen recounting the Old Testament story. And then we have a new story of these people hearing the old story and be like, nah, that's probably not us, and stoning Stephen to death. So we have two accounts of the first story and one account of a new story of people being confronted with the plan of God for their lives and saying, nope, no thanks. Why did God think this story was so important for us? Because I'll tell you what usually happens. This is my default. Maybe it's not yours because you're more spiritual than I am. But I usually read this and be like, sure glad that wasn't me. Right? And under my breath, I'm kind of like, idiots. Rejecting the plan of God. Sure glad I don't have a problem with rejecting the plan of God. (laughs) Right? Like, this isn't my problem. This doesn't have anything to do with me. Uh, If I saw the Red Sea part, I'd be like, I'm in. Let's do it. Let's go, God. If I saw the miracles and the frogs in Egypt and I was delivered from slavery, if I saw Jesus raised from the dead, I'd be like, I'm in. Sign me up. Let's go. (coughs) Probably not. God probably told this story as many times as he told it and drew attention to it the way that he drew attention to it because this has something to teach all humanity more than we would let on. There's probably something more true about the way these people handled their situations that can apply to the way we handle our situations than maybe we would expect at first glance. We read this and we go, I don't have a problem with this. But that's probably not why God put it in the Bible. He's like, yeah, all those people in Spokane, like, they're really good people. They won't need to read this. But I'm going to put it in there anyway. No, 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 actually, that would be a complete waste of God's time. And so he put this in here because he wanted to communicate something of value to us. That's why we tell stories. Remember, I started at the beginning. I was like, why do we tell stories? We tell stories because we believe there's something of value in the story, right? We believe there's something that you can gain from hearing this story. And God didn't waste his time telling this story as many times as he told it. There is value in you understanding about this story, something that Stephen said. First, he said this. He said, you're stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You need to know this about humanity. Is we have a capability, maybe not even capability, how about a propensity? Like, we tend towards stiff-neckedness. I don't even know if that's a word. It is now, right? We tend towards uncircumcision of our hearts and our ears. We tend towards appearing godly outwardly only. We tend towards looking godly and not actually being godly. You need to know this about yourself. You need to understand that your natural inclination is to be prideful and stubborn. Don't elbow your spouse right now, right? That's all of us, right? We have that inclination. That's how we desire. Like, if you're left to your own devices, that's how you will end up. And not only stubborn, but hypocritical and unable to receive correction. Uncircumcised heart and ears. So that even if God was to be like, hey, 
kind of going the wrong way. Like, I'm not listening. I don't want to listen. Your natural tendency as a human is to be prideful, hypocritical, and to not listen when God tries to correct you. And then to add to that, he says this. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Interesting that his accusation is not you sometimes resist the Holy Spirit. Or every once in a while you resist the Holy Spirit. There's something in the heart of humans that is always resisting the Holy Spirit. It's not like you wake up one day and be like, oh man, I feel like not doing what God wants me to do. That's weird. No, no, it happens every single day, every single moment of every single day. And if you don't know that about yourself, you just walk into situations being like, this is what I feel like doing. I'm good. What, every human has a part of their heart that just wants to reject the plan of God at all times, in every situation, in every moment, right? You walk into a situation this afternoon, you got two choices, and there's part of you who's like, go this way. But I'm not supposed to. I know, but we should do it, right? That's why they came up with the like angels on each shoulder, right? There's the good angel on the one shoulder and the, you know, the cartoon thing, like go this way, go this. Why? Because there is a part of us that literally always resists the Holy Spirit. And if we were capable of somehow in any moment not resisting the Holy Spirit, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die for our sins, right? If we were capable of anything else than always resisting the Holy Spirit, Jesus would have just come down and be like, hey, guys, you know what to do. Knock it off. Try better. Try harder. Do better. Right? That's what he would have had to say. I mean, like, okay, sorry, Jesus. But we're incapable of not resisting the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus said, I just have to save them. I can't talk them into fixing themselves. I have to save them so they can be saved. I have to deliver them. We never could save ourselves. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, well, he's definitely not talking about me. He's talking about the Jewish people. Like, this message is not for me. This is for the people. No, no, no. Actually, we have this incredibly long line of humanity who has always struggled with the things he's accusing these men of struggling with. Uh, like, humanity has messed up in so many different ways, in so many different times. Like, you, you look at that and you go, that's incredible. How did you manage to resist the Holy Spirit in this moment, in that moment? Like, how did you do that? And I remember, I was in Bible college, and we took a church history class. And I got to the end of that class, and it just struck me how messed up every single person and or movement within church history was. All of them. Every single person that you've ever heard about in church history, every single movement, they had one thing or maybe sometimes multiple things that were way off. And you're like, how did they think that was okay? Right? And these people are selling indulgences, and then these people don't even believe the word of God is true. They think it's all allegory. And then these people are okay with slavery. And then this guy over here is anti-Semitic. And you're like, wait. 
Like these are the, like, how did they? So I remember Megan and I were sitting together one time and I was like thinking through this and I was like, what do you think our thing is? She's like, what do you mean? I was like, 500 years from now, are they going to look back on our generation of church and be like, can you believe those guys were okay with this? Can you believe they thought this? And she's like, I don't know. But she said, I don't know, like she didn't think what I said was true. And I was like, wait, you think we don't have one? Like we're the first church ever that figured it out? High five, we're the perfect church, guys. Yeah. 2021, we got it. Took a while, but we are here. You're welcome, world. No, everybody always, like this is why we need salvation, because we are stiff-necked, we have uncircumcised hearts and ears, and we always resist the Holy Spirit. And I promise you, there's something 500 years from now, if we make it that long, if Jesus doesn't come back, they're going to be like, can you believe that Riverstone Chapel Church thought this? Those guys. And yet, that was God's plan for salvation. So here's where we finish. Stephen told this story to alert these men that they were resisting the plan of God. And not only were they resisting the plan of God, as God was using Stephen to alert them of their mistake, they were not listening to the correction of God. So here's the question. Do you have the humility in your heart to sincerely ask God, am I off track here? Am I doing something I shouldn't be doing? Is there something I need to be doing that I haven't been doing? Is there a step I need to take? Is there a relationship I need to end? Is there a direction we need to go? Do you have the humility to actually ask God that? Like, this thing over here, do I need to get on board with that? Do you have the humility to listen? I think that churches are full of people that even if God wanted to get their attention, they wouldn't listen. I'm telling you, if you come into church and expect not to hear anything that changes the way you live your life, you're doing it wrong. It's a complete waste of time. If you came in here and were like, I ain't going to say nothing that helps me. You're missing out. The whole point of this is, God, here's my attention for an hour on a Sunday. It's not that much to ask. Now, please tell me if I need to do something different. Please tell me if I need to go a different way. Sometimes God's like, I'm trying to get your attention. But they're convinced they're right. They're convinced they already got it figured out. They convince that. You ever talk to like a teenager that's convinced he's got it figured out? Is that the most frustrating experience in the world? No? Just sorry, teenagers. Happy Mother's Day again. Right? Like, I feel like we're that way with God sometimes. We go to church. God's like, hey, like now we're good. Just going to read our Bibles, sing some songs, get out of here, go have brunch. We're going to take some time right now. Actually, worship team, you can come on up. You can help me with this last part. We're going to take some time to pray. It's not going to be long. Jake's going to play some music. Uh, Go ahead and stand with me. And I'm just going to give you maybe 30 seconds to a minute. And this is just going to be you and God time. Just pray on your own. Lord, if you want to open my eyes to something I'm missing, if you want to
give me some direction here? If I have not been listening, would you please reveal that to me? So Jake's going to play. We're just going to spend some time in prayer. After about 30 seconds or a minute, I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll sing this last song.